Welcome to Episode 5 of Solved, the D.B. Cooper Hijacking. This podcast is brought to you by Principia Media, whose groundbreaking four-part documentary, D.B. Cooper, The Real Story, is available on iTunes, Amazon Prime Video, Google Play, and Vimeo. For more information, go to therealdbcooper.com. I'm your host, Dave Parsons. In our last episode, we listened to audio tapes of Walter Recca, the hijacker, and Carl Loren, his friend, discussing what happened when Walter landed and how he was able to get a man he described as the cowboy to talk to his friend on the phone about where to pick him up. In this episode, Carl describes how he determined where Walter landed. Because Carl had studied the D.B. Cooper hijacking case, he knew that Northwest Airlines had told the FBI that the drop zone for the hijacker was just north of Portland, Oregon. But whenever he mentioned to Walter where the hijacker had reportedly landed, Walter would push back. This is how Carl Lauren remembers conversations with Walter talking about the drop zone from an interview in 2016. Walter kept telling me angrily one time, he said, why do you keep saying Portland? He said, I never was anywhere near close to Portland. And I says, well, nowhere near close to Portland how far, really? And he said, I don't know. He said, but I know one thing. I wasn't anywhere near close to Portland, which he, he wasn't. But he didn't know right where he was. He knew how he got home, so that really helped me out. And I, I had the highway. Uh, I had Blewett Pass. I had Kashmir and Highway 2. And, and, and so I knew if I knew how he got home, I knew approximately where he started from, but not exactly. But because Carl never learned to use a computer, he asked his son David to help locate potential sites. Here's how David Lauren remembers finding them. My interest was to try to narrow down where he might have jumped at and look on Google Earth. From his description to me, he jumped out, and when he got lower to the ground, he could see car headlights. He could see two bridges and cars crossing those bridges. He landed. Uh, he said he wadded up his parachute. I was Airborne Army, and I know exactly what you're trained to do exactly is to wad up that parachute. That's what they teach you. It's reaction. My involvement in this whole thing is minimal. Clearly, when you say you had two, two rivers kind of converging with two bridges, I thought that might be unique enough to where I could find that on Google Earth. And I kind of narrowed it down to two spots. One of them was in Cleellum, and he, mind you, when you ask him what the name of this town was or where he was at, he's going back 40 years. He's like, I don't know. I just called up my buddy, said his car broke down, and he needed to have his buddy come pick him up. And, you know, at that point in time, you know, what town he was in was just to get his buddy there. He didn't commit it to memory. And that's a very important aspect to this story. When Walter and Carl talked about the hijacking, it was well over 30 years after it happened. So it's understandable why Walter didn't remember where it was that he landed. But because Carl was actively investigating the crime, he needed to find the exact location where Walter landed that night. Here's Carl from a videotaped interview in 2016 telling how he began honing in on the landing site. I somewhere got the numbers of some cafes out in that area of where he went home from. And the first one I hit, there was a girl named Jerry that was a waitress in there. 
I told her what I was looking for. I said, what I'm looking for, and this, this place might not even exist today, but I said, years ago, in your area, not too far from you, probably within 15 miles of where you're at, uh, there was a cafe. It was open until midnight. It also had gas pumps, and it did not serve beer. And she thought a minute, and she says, that was the Tianaway Junction Cafe. And she says, you're right, it's not there anymore. It burned down about 10, 12, 10 or 11 years ago. And there's a fire hall there now. Well, I didn't know, I'd never really been there yet. So, but there would be a day when I would go out there and check this story out and found, found everything just, just as she said that it was. And that was very helpful because now I knew the route that he took to get home. From the information provided by the owner of the cafe, Carl now had a pretty good idea where Walter landed, but he needed to prompt Walter's memory more to get him to remember the actual name of the area. Here's how Carl remembered confronting Walter about where the restaurant was located. I had a road map and I looked at all the uh, little towns anywhere near that Highway 97. And then I called him up one day and I started going over them. And I'd, you know, go this one and that one and Ronald and blah and blah and Cleelum. Well, he didn't know the word Cleelum. I said, uh, Tianaway. He said, that's it. Now that Carl had the name of the area where the landing was, and had confirmation from Walter that it was indeed the place, Carl needed to make sure the landing location matched with the timeline of the actual hijacking. I placed a compass that Loretta uses for her artwork on SeaTac, and I went to that place where they said that Cooper landed, and I swung an arc, and it went right over Cleelum. Carl explains the timeline of the hijacking and how it confirms that the Tianaway Junction location is the correct drop zone. The timeline is that he left the Seattle airport at 7.38. He got to the uh, cafe at 8.35, made the phone call at 8.42, and the whole time to do the Cooper hijacking from Seattle to the time that he got to the Kenaway Junction Cafe was less than an hour. I got the timeline from when he took off in Seattle. Now I got the timeline to where he, he walked into the cafe at and how far it is and so forth. And now you're just down to basic pilot stuff, you know, beginner pilot stuff, you know, how far, how much time and, and, and all of that. But how could Northwest Airlines have gotten the route the plane took that night wrong? We asked an airline pilot who regularly flies that route. Jeff Waringa is a commercial airline pilot with over 30 years of flight experience. I'm familiar with the DB Cooper case, having flown the 727, and I'm really familiar with flying in the Pacific Northwest. If I were to fly from Seattle to Reno in an unpressurized airplane with the flaps and the gear extended, I would only go east. Flying east, you can clear the Cascades in about 15 minutes. And then you can proceed south without any terrain issues. And that is my problem with the route that is stated in the D.B. Cooper case. David Lauren, who is also a pilot who has flown out of Seattle, agrees. That route that they, they say they took, to me, that's not the route I would have taken from personal experience. So 
we looked on Google Earth, we looked at the route that we thought they might have took, and uh, there's a VOR at Cleelum. I had a shot for that VOR and headed right south and never worried about my altitude or hitting anything. Jeff Waringa agrees. So I know there may be a discrepancy between which route the aircraft took. It's hard for me to understand why they would take the route that they said they took. One possible explanation about how the actual route could have been missed is the mountainous terrain. Ron Taylor is a former air traffic controller who was working during the time the Cooper hijacking happened. Here he explains how radar works and how it could have mistracked the airplane the night of the hijacking. The air traffic control system in 1970 was basically just broadband ASR radar. There was no automation to speak of in the system until around 1975, so it was very antiquated compared to what we have today. The way um, they worked back in the old days is most aircraft would go Victor Airways or Jet Airways, and they would fly from a VOR to another VOR. An airway is like a roadway. It's in the air. It's, go it's connected by points or, or VORs, okay? And those points interconnect, and, they, and the pilot tunes in and goes to those points with checkpoints, and the controller monitors that to ensure the aircraft is still on the road. I would think that the TPX-42 would probably have a range of maybe 50, 60 miles, depending, okay, on what's in its way. And mountains would be a problem for a radar. Radar tracks line of sight, so if there's a mountain in the way, then it would not pass through, so you would not be able to pick up the target. The loss of an image would be very common, so depending on where their radar was located in the Seattle area, it's, it's very possible they could lose a track or target. Back in the day in Seattle, I would think it would make more common sense to go away to avoid mountainous terrain, okay? Not to fly into a terrainy area because uh, could have a problem with that, okay? And if, and if, if the uh, Cooper flight had to be at 10K, 10,000 feet, why would you want to put yourself at risk unless you're in VFR conditions where you can see everything and undoubtedly this weather conditions was prevailing and why would you take a chance? Because the controller's not going to see it, but he knows also there's obstacles in the way, and this pilot's going to have to climb and descend to avoid or go around or deviate from his course. But again, you don't do that unless you can, you have visual. The pilot can see VFR out the window. I mean, I wouldn't do it. I mean, that's kind of like a no-brainer. But if they did it, you know, somebody had uh, good luck. Joe Koenig, author of Getting the Truth, I am D.B. Cooper, has over 45 years of law enforcement and investigative experience. Having worked with the FBI along with other agencies, he understands how evidence is gathered and how it can at times be incorrect. The FBI, like all law enforcement agencies, relies a great deal on source information. In those days, as I understand it, radar wasn't very sophisticated. So the FBI had to rely on Northwest Airline for flight path information. And uh, the FBI's information is only as good as what Northwest Airlines provided them. But Joe Koenig, who has worked on many high-profile cases, has another compelling reason for the difference in the so-called official route and what we now know is the actual route the plane took that night. I could make a very strong case for the FBI not releasing the exact flight path of that plane for fear that public would be contaminating any scenes that might be along that trail or destroying evidence. Ron Taylor adds. 
the government will lie. Okay? The, the government's not going to tell you everything. In, in the case of the D.B. Cooper, if the government put out that this guy flew this route and all the money has been dumped and everything else, and if they told everybody, the gold rush would be on, everybody would be looking for the packages. It'd be like Area 51. They're not, they're not going to tell you what they're doing, but there are things going on. And when things or incidents happen, they're not going to tell the public straight, up front, everything. In some cases, they shouldn't. But in a lot of cases, they should. Joe Koenig agrees. After all, there was $200,000 taken in this hijacking, which was a lot of money in those days. It's in cash, and the public knows that. And uh, they'd be drawn to any likely crime scenes to look for that evidence. When Carl and Walter first discussed the location of the landing, Don Brennan, who drove the getaway car, was still alive. But because Don did not want to discuss the hijacking or his involvement in driving the getaway car, Carl was unable to ask him questions. Then in 2010, Don Brennan died, making it impossible to get his input. As for the official explanation of the flight path flown that night, it has been redrawn several times. And each time it has been redrawn, the so-called official flight path has shifted in spite of the fact that Northwest Airlines initially said the flight path was correct. If they were so sure of the flight path, why then did they change it? There have been a lot of mysteries in the history of aviation. Recently, in spite of all our current tracking technology, airplanes are still lost. The tragic disappearance of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 on March 8, 2014 is an example. After departing from Kuala Lumpur for Beijing with 227 passengers and 12 crew members aboard, the airplane was lost somewhere in the Indian Ocean. There is still no explanation for that disappearance. Back in 1971, when the D.B. Cooper hijacking happened, it was before modern radar, GPS, and even prior to the invention of the modern computer. Until the release of the information about Walter Recca's involvement, which is based on hard evidence, all other suspects were simply non-fact-based theories. In the next episode, Carl decides to visit the site of the landing to see if he can find the man Walter Recca referred to as the cowboy. My name is Jeff Foshadis. Just past the Wenatchee overpass, just outside of Clellum, about a mile, I noticed a man standing on the side of the road, hitchhiking, and he had a suit on, but I couldn't pick anybody up, and it was, had been raining and snowing, you know, mixed. It was cold, November, and I felt sorry for the guy, but I couldn't pick him up, so I just kept going until I got to the Tianaway Junction. End of Episode 5. Thank you for listening. For more information, go to our Facebook page, The Real D.B. Cooper, and like our page. On that page, you will find out more about the story of Walter Recca, the man who became D.B. Cooper.